Our Up First team goes to work while you are sleeping. That way, you wake up to the freshest take on the day's news. It's the 10-minute-ish morning news podcast from NPR. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. A couple of years ago, Alice Wong received an invitation from the White House. Dear 2015, the White House hosted a reception of a celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Barriers with Disabilities Act. Yep, Wong uses a machine to help her breathe, but more on that in a bit. Anyway, she was invited to the White House to help celebrate the anniversary of a landmark piece of legislation signed into law by President George H.W. Bush that prohibited discrimination based on disability. When Wong got the invitation, though, she kind of ignored it. I didn't reply because, uh, you know, I don't fly because of my disability and yeah, there was no way I was going to go there. But the Obama White House wasn't going to take no for an answer. They're like, oh, wait, actually, we have this thing lined up for you. There's a telepresence robot. A telepresence robot. So picture this. Wong was at home in San Francisco sitting in front of her computer. And using her computer's video camera, she beamed her face onto a device in the White House that looked like a large iPad on wheels which Wong could control from her keyboard. She became the first person ever to visit the White House or meet the president by robotic presence. And she wants that experience memorialized on her epitaph. I was able to meet President Obama, which was the, you know, something that will be marked to my gravestone. <laughs> yeah, president Obama to 2015. And all this happened because Wong is a tireless advocate for people with disabilities and because of technology. Technology, you know, has a way now of really, you know, leveling the playing field for a lot of people with disabilities. So it's a really basic time. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to eavesdrop on some of the great conversations happening in the wide world of audio today. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. Alice Wong was born with a neuromuscular disability that affects the way her muscles work. And, as we noted before, she also uses a machine to help her breathe. So I'm wearing a mask that's over my nose. It's connected to a tube. And it gives me uh, breaths of air. So it just gives me additional support to help me breathe and talk and uh, save my energy. And Wong needs to save her energy because she's a busy person these days. She's the founder of the Disability Visibility Project. It's an online community dedicated to recording and sharing disability stories. Recently, the project partnered with StoryCorps to preserve oral histories of the disability community. The only disability is a bad attitude. You know, I love Stella Young's response. No amount of smiling at a flight of stairs ever turned it into a ramp. To date, the project has collected more than 140 oral histories of people with disabilities. Maybe you've heard some of them on your favorite public radio station. Anyway, to further the project's mission of amplifying disability stories, Wong recently began the Disability Visibility Podcast. They've tackled issues like violence on people with disabilities, Medicaid and health care reform, and assistive technology. So, Latif, tell me a little bit about the types of assistive technology that you use and what you can't live without. 
the assistive technologies that I cannot live without are my power wheelchair because that is how I get around and the Proloquo 2 Go and Proloquo 2 text apps on my iPad and my iPhone because that is how I communicate. Yep, I'm in a power chair too. We'll chat more with Wong in a bit about why it's necessary for people with disabilities to control the disability narrative. But now we're going to hear from another woman working to flip the media script for a marginalized group. Journalist Liz Plank came to prominence during the most recent American presidential campaign with a video series called 2016-ish. The Vox series tried to explain just what the heck was happening during the campaign, but from a decidedly feminist and millennial perspective. For example, Trump's comment about grabbing women in their you-know-where. Dear GOP dudes who are suddenly realizing that Donald Trump is a flaming misogynist after over a year of women telling you that he's in fact a flaming misogynist. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the club, or as women call it, our daily lives. Well, the election has come and gone. Donald Trump is president. And Plank is back with a new video series and companion podcast, both called Divided States of Women, the podcast she co-hosts with Heatha Herzog. Both series examine the lives of women in 2017. It's almost impossible to be a female in America and avoid body negativity seeping into your psyche. Of course, some of us experience it more than others, but if you're a woman, your body is fair game for scrutiny in a way that men's are not. Liz Plank, co-host of Divided States of Women, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So by my estimation, I would say that you are a professional feminist. (laughs) Would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I try. You know, people ask me all the time, when did you become a feminist? And right. I want to ask them, when did you decide you weren't a feminist? Mm-hmm. Because that's how it should work. You should have to explain why you're not for uh, gender mm-hmm. equality, not why you fight for it. Right. But I always say that I was a feminist in utero because uh, my mom was a hardcore feminist and right. she never let me be anything else but that. You know, there's there's this shift now where women are – younger women are owning their feminism. Some men are claiming it as well. Mm-hmm. What do you think – it means to be a young feminist in 2017? It means to be whoever, you know, whatever the frick you want. And feminism, its popularity has always shifted over time, right? Mm -hmm. So remember when Time Magazine said that feminism was dead because Ally McBeal wore skirts or something? Uh, And then, you know, three or four years ago, Time Magazine also decided that feminism had to be banned as a word because it was so overused and so popular that we're sick of hearing it. We don't need it anymore, which is equally disturbing. And so feminism goes through waves. And now we're going through this interesting wave where it is uh, extremely, I think, popular and it's accepted. And do you know how I know that? Because I went to a Young Women Conservative Conference in Dallas and almost every single woman I spoke to identified oh, as a feminist. Oh, interesting. Some of them wholeheartedly. Right. Others sort of say, well, I'm a second wave feminist or right. I'm a first wave feminist. They have to qualify it. They have to qualify it and say, this is what feminism means to me. This whole third wave stuff that's going on, I really don't identify with that. What don't you like about the third wave? Like, it's just, I've, I've heard that a lot just today. Like, the third wave seems like it's turning a lot of people off. Like, what words come to mind when I say third wave feminism? Something that I deal with a lot, I'm from Columbus, which is super LGBT friendly. Um, I don't personally agree with like just walking around naked and like, I know it's like anti-objectifying, but walking around like that and like 
mm, I don't know. That's just not my thing, and it makes other people uncomfortable. And I have um, my little brother is trans, so I love the LGBT community. And it's not I'm not a homophobe or a xenophobe or any of that, but um, it just there are things like we can't push our beliefs on you. So when everyone's working definition of their own brand of feminism is going to be different. So then how do you bridge that if we're talking about, quote unquote, women's issues, then how do you square partisanship Mm -hmm. within that? Right. Feminism has, whether it's conservative women, whether it's progressive women, one of the things that it consistently has done over the course of history is often leave people out. I I don't think that we should blame feminism necessarily for doing that. Feminism, by definition, is looking at all forms of oppression and how they impact women for for all women and how those uh, oppressions intersect. And so if we want to talk about first wave or or second wave feminism, which many of these conservative women identified with, first wave and second wave feminism left out a lot of people. (laughs) And, um, you know, intersectional feminism or the wave of intersectionality that came after that is much more inclusive and a sort of a upgrade of feminism. And and actually a lot of people would look back at what feminism was for first wave and and, and second wave and say that wasn't really feminism. Right. One of your podcast episodes, you talk about guns and particularly how the NRA approaches female gun ownership, Mm -hmm. but also how it could be a feminist issue. Leanne is modeling the Belladonna by Chameleon Bags, a beautiful, functional, everyday bag with many organizing pockets. The concealed carry pocket is padded to reduce gun visibility and enclosed with a three-sided heavy-duty zipper for top, left, or right-hand access. Made of vegan leather and sold with a... You are sort of delving into all the crossroads. I feel like with your podcast. Yeah. And it's really fun because my co-host Heatha Herzog, you know, we are really good friends and and she obviously is uh, conservative and I'm not. I'm I'm Canadian. That's what I that's how I label myself, Um, which basically means communist. Really, let's be honest. Um, So we have really interesting conversations where sometimes we do agree and sometimes I'll take a more conservative viewpoint and she'll take a more progressive viewpoint on something. Our next episode, we feature a conversation with Esther Perel about you know, cheating and this new glass ceiling that women have finally broken through, which is the cheating gap. Mm-hmm. Um, aha. Uh, so many different reactions to that. I, it's been so interesting to ask women. So many women just react. smash right yeah, through they're it. They're like, great, whatever. Finally. I'm those, cheating on you know, everybody now. Exactly. Cheating on my bosses. So cheating right. on my dog. Right. Um, and other women believe, no, like us acting more like men is not actually equality. Right. Um, and, you know, in terms of doing their bad behavior. Um are mirroring it. So we, you know, had a really interesting conversation. She's married and I know that she has, she's very traditional in her approach to marriage. You know, she agreed with Mike Pence's rule about her, you know, her husband not meeting up with women if there's, <laughs> which I, I find, you know, ridiculous. And, and I told her if I cheated, I feel like I could never tell you. And she said, you know what? I cheated on my in my last relationship. And we sort of had this exchange of, you know, so it's, it's really, really fun. It's a lot of of genuine surprises about sort of, you know, the multifaceted perspectives that yeah. that and, and, and experiences that women have. I, I feel like uh, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about sexual harassment in yeah. the workplace. What? Because really? Is that coming up? It, it's interesting that it is all of this is coming out in this like fire hose blast, it mm-hmm. seems. Um, obviously, uh, workplace harassment 
is not new. Women have been experiencing this for as long as they have been in a workplace. Um, But now, you know, these very high-profile cases. And I wonder what you think all of that can be attributed to. Because, again, like we said, this is not the first time Mm -hmm. that men have been accused. I mean, people are listening, I guess. Yeah. I mean, what was really interesting was, you know, obviously the Me Too hashtag with millions of women using it to talk about their trauma and talk about traumatic experience that they've they've had um, was incredibly powerful. But I also, to be completely honest with you, it was powerful, but it also felt like we've been we've done this before. Yeah. Women are talking about this all of the time. Right. And, you know, a year ago, almost exactly, women were talking about this because right. the current president of the United States of America was accused of very similar you know, crimes by multiple women. Right. And the kinds of stereotypes and victim blaming that were put out into the ether on cable news, on mainstream media, you know, Lou Dobbs shared the private information of one of the women who accused Donald Trump, which is, you know, that's why women don't report. And so even then, back then, I, the biggest thing that Donald Trump was saying and the biggest thing that all of his surrogates were saying on television was, if this happened, why didn't the women talk about it at the time? That's why. Because Lou Dobbs is going to tweet out to millions of people your private information. Right. That's why women don't report. And so... Again, with after the Me Too, you know, hashtag, which was brave and powerful, and I was so proud of all of the women who came forward with these really traumatic experiences. I wanted a paradigm shift. I, I was, you know, okay. We know that women go through all of these experiences. Right. We know that women are incredibly unsafe in the world. Where's the conversation with men? Right. <laughs> what are the men doing? Right. And and reading our stories is unfortunately not enough. Most sexual violence. If you combine both genders, uh, because there are male victims, still 78% of sexual violence is perpetrated by men in this country. Sure, sure. Liz Plank, co-host of Divided States of Women from Vox Media, uh, thanks for hanging out with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Liz Plank is the host of Divided States of Women from Vox. To find out more about the show, check out biglisten.org. Remember our pal Alice Wong from the top of the show? She's the person behind the Disability Visibility Project, which showcases disability politics, culture, and media. And not long ago, Wong started a podcast delving into issues affecting the disability community. She says she was trying to fill the void she saw. The reason why I do what I do is that I grew up with very few images of myself, very few stories that really resonated with me as a disabled person, I think. You know, in most mainstream media, most of the reporters and editors are not disabled. So they're going to be covering the story or interviewing a person with a disability in a different way. Not only did Wong rarely see images of herself in mainstream media, but she also never heard anyone who sounded like her, especially on the radio. You know, radio, I think, has, you know, certain ideas of what's what's good radio. And I think that's where, in a lot of ways, a lot of voices, and different voices, you know, there are people who are nonverbal, who do communicate. And sometimes we leave them out of, you know, radio. 
Wong's show, Disability Visibility, obviously features voices from people with audible disabilities. But she wants to hear more of that on the air. So she wrote an essay about it titled Diversifying Radio with Disabled Voices. Here she is reading from that. On radio, I want to hear people who lisp, stutter, nurgle, stammer, wheeze, to repeat themselves, to pause when needed to breathe, to make noises when they talk, to salivate and drool, to communicate, to enunciate and pronounce differently, to use different speech patterns and rhythms, to use ventilators or other assistive technology, to use sign language interpreters or other people that facilitate speech, to use computer-generated speech. I want to disrupt what was thought of as a default public radio voice. I want to challenge listeners as they ride the subway, jog on their treadmills, to drive on their commute. Even if the sounds and words that we create might require greater concentration and attention, I believe our stories are worth the effort. Alice Wong, blowing up public radio voice, one sentence at a time. We're going to take a little break now, but when we come back, we'll talk with Tony Award-winning actor Dennis O'Hare on how to extricate yourself from a bad dinner party situation. Do you have kids? No. See, no, no. get yourself a kid. I know. I have a six-year-old, oh. and it's brilliant. You just kind of go, um, oh, my God, I, I need to check in. But first, science journalist and numbers enthusiast Joel Warner on how average stories featuring math tend to go. The crazy mathematician who's like, you know, on the borderline of sanity, who's coming up with these magical ideas. And it's, it's like, you know, that's not really true. And it's not how numbers work. That's coming up in just a sec. Stick with us. This is NPR. podcast I really like listening to is the Dork Forest Radio Show by Jackie Cation. She's a stand-up comic based in L.A. Welcome to the Dork Forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsessions will make us laugh and And her podcast is about everything from interviewing Frank Zappa's kids. What about you? What do you, uh, what do you love? Well, um, I'm so worried that I, I'm, I don't qualify for dorkdom because I, I... You aren't alone. I love something and then I, I move on. I have oh. a lot of things that I love. Like, I'll go through a phase of, say, betting. Uh, talking about video games and my name is Phil. I live in Minneapolis and that's that. Thank you. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if you have dork tendencies like our pal Phil from Minneapolis, tell us about them. Call up the pod line and recommend your favorite show. The number is 202-885-POD1, and that's that, just like Phil said. I am a person who tries to have as few dealings with numbers as humanly possible. I was trash at math in school, and I am pretty sure I cheated on a multiplication test in third grade. Sorry, Miss Barone. So I try to stay away from figures to the extent that I can. Not Joel Werner. 
He's a former research scientist turned journalist, so he's comfortable with numbers. And at some point, he realized that there was a dearth of stories about math and statistics. So he made a show to help correct that. This story starts with a number. Well, actually a string of numbers. 6, 23, 89, 15, 26, 53. From the point of view of history, the major transition was June 23rd, 1989. At 3.26 in the afternoon and 53 seconds, you see, that string of numbers, it's a date and time string. And it represents the exact moment in time that Australia first connected to the internet. Joel Werner, host of Some of All Parts, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so Joel, I feel like I don't need to tell you this, but one of the first rules of radio is don't put numbers on the air. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's really hard to understand numbers with our ears, right? So like... Did nobody tell you that? I, I like setting myself challenges. What can I say? No, right. I, you know, I understand it. Often people have bad high school experiences or they're just like, you know, math is a, is a, is a four-letter word kind of thing. But, mm. but there are wonderful stories from this world that are being ignored because of that fear and because of the don't put numbers on radio thing and all of that. And I kind of, yeah seize the moment to to try to tell some of those stories. That's interesting that you say it's really like our collective trauma around (laughs) high school and middle school math that makes it so that we don't put um, or that we don't report stories about numbers. Yeah, or or if we do, it's the it's the beautiful mind kind of you know it's it's the the crazy mathematician right. who's like you know on the border borderline of sanity who's coming right. up with these magical ideas and it's it's like you know that's not really true and it's not how numbers work mm-hmm. and whether you like it or not, math and numbers are woven into the fabric of everything you do every day. When you mentioned crazy mathematician, I thought, well, that is actually how I think of anyone who goes into math is like uh, like naturally they have like wild hair and they're just scribbling in the very very late hours just like formula after formula after formula um why do you think we have and I say we but maybe it's just me but have this idea of of math being something that's on the fringes you know I think sometimes that that idea, that that sort of caricature of the crazed mathematician is kind of true. One of the mm-hmm. stories I tell this season is is about a musician, Robert Schneider, from the American band Apples in Stereo, and he kind of gave up music to go and follow a career in number theory, and he got obsessed. And Ohm's law is the fundamental law of electronics. Basically, it's an equation that describes in numbers how electricity flows. And it's so simple, it just has three things in it with an equal sign. And when I saw this law on the page, it completely blew my mind because I realized in that moment that everything that I thought was important, everything I had tried to do that was beautiful, all of my friendships, my band, my friends that I had traded music with, with, listening to the radio, listening to records and tapes, recording onto the tape machine, the microphones, flickering lights, red lights flashing. All of this stuff was existing against the backdrop of the simple mathematical equation. And it's not just that. My brain was an electrical system. My thoughts and my mind somehow were being supported by this equation. It's this crazy loop of electricity that our entire existence is completely wrapped up in. And all of this stuff was contained in a simple equation that was just algebra on a page. 
mathematics took over his life. And maybe in those cases, I think it is its own world in a way. So it is a language that other people, that normal people like you and I don't speak. And so maybe there's a tendency for some people to kind of just immerse themselves in that world. But also there's like... There's just like real normal people who are using math and using it real in really interesting ways in their everyday life. And, you know, they're, they're a bigger part of the story, I think, than the sort of the, the caricature mathematician. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, speaking of music, there's so much in your... Um in your episodes, it's related to music, the, the sort of um, confluence of, of music and numbers. Um, I mean, you you, you guys, uh, you mm-hmm. have a story about um, trying to figure out this mysterious Beatles chord. And then and then you have a story about, you know, how data sonification was used to make a song out of somebody's grandma seizure. The clicking of a Geiger counter where faster clicks indicate higher radiation levels. This is one of the earliest and most practical examples of data sonification. Brian's work, on the other hand, is much more song-like. Initially, I was very interested in learning how to make music. You know, I had a particular skill set, which was computer science, and I wanted to figure out a way in which I can learn music. And so, you know, I did some research into data sonification, and, you know, I wasn't very kind of satisfied with the current state of data sonification. I think a lot of times it's almost like listening to a chart, you know? So the question I always had is like, why make it into sound if it's already fine as a chart? So I kind of used that as the, the challenge for this project to make kind of meaningful data music, essentially. And it's so interesting. Do you think um, music can be used to explain math and numbers in some way that that's sort of a good uh, proxy for for us lay people? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think I think there's there's definitely a connection between science and music. Like Brian May, the the lead guitarist of Queen. Mm-hmm also happens to be have a PhD in astrophysics. Um, when did they find the time? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Brian Cox, the, the, the BBC's sort of poster boy for science, was in the, the band Dereem. Do you mm-hmm. remember Dereem? They had that, that horrible song uh, in the 90s, things can, things can only get better. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was sure hoping you would sing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I, I've gotten over the whole thing. Singing on, singing on radio. I'm putting numbers on radio and I'm putting bad singing on radio (laughs) as well. (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely think there's this synergy between maybe the parts of your brain that understand science or understand numbers uh, have some connection to sort of learning and playing music. And this is me just speculating now, so please, listeners, don't take this as gospel. But, but like, I also think that, you know, when you think about what what math is, it's, it's us making up these symbols that we then try to put together in a way that explains something in the natural world, mm-hmm. right? So it's just it's just like a language we use to try to describe things that happen. And like writing music is kind of like that as well. Like making an instrument is a way to harness the sound. Like it's a physical way to harness the sound or writing notation is a way to sort of write down a description of something that happens, like sound waves, you know. Right. And so maybe there's a connection there. Maybe it's like it's like it's both this way of us trying to harness something in the natural world that's otherwise indescribable, that's more felt. Right, right. It's some type of translation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, you you obviously don't just uh, 
talk about music. You you also have an episode about netball. <laughs> it's like a game you're intimately familiar with, I'm sure, being well, an American. <laughs> well, you know, uh, a little known fact, I work for two years in a British boarding school, so I'm <gasps> intimately familiar. Yeah, so netball is... I asked some of the best players in the world how to describe what they do, and and <laughs> without exception, they each said, well, it's essentially basketball. <laughs> but the difference is you can't bounce the ball, and you can't move when you have the ball, and there's no backboard. You know, I, I didn't set out to do a netball <laughs> story. So many people have said that before. I know, right? You just, you <laughs> down the rabbit hole and suddenly it's 3 a.m. and you, you're, you know, ears deep in a netball story. Um, Mitch Mooney, <laughs> he told right. me that he'd gone and studied how biologists study the way that fish school and then applied that science to analyzing Australia's opponents in, in netball. <laughs> Inspired by research like Ashes, Mitch Mooney starts to figure out how the science of collective behaviour could give the Australian netball team a competitive edge. We wanted to know a bit more about New Zealand. So what tendencies did they have? Were there any things that they typically did that could give us some sort of knowledge that we could use? And I thought, well, if we actually looked at a team like New Zealand, like England, like Jamaica, as... A biologist does as like a schooling fish, as a collective behaviour, as opposed to individuals doing stuff. Maybe that can actually give us some sort of advantage on the court. Maybe we could come up with a strategy that might be able to address the collective behaviour more so than the individual. And I almost dropped the phone. You know, it's that moment where you're sort of like, maybe there isn't going to be a story here. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm just like... Going down, like going down a dead end, and then suddenly right. this guy says, yeah, I've been using fish science, and you're like, bingo. Joel Werner is the host of Some of All Parts from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. To find out more about the show, hit up biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk to actor Dennis O'Hare about his murder mystery podcast, Deadly Manners, which is set at a pretty swanky dinner party. You know, as we go along, people start dying. <laughs> people start dying. It's a it's a locked room mystery, and so we run around and try to figure out who. We try to eliminate people, you know, as suspects. And you know, at the end, there's a shocker. There's a twist. I, I'm just I'm just gonna say that. Well, you just have to stick around to find out. Stay put. This is NPR. Ever get to Friday, look back on the week, and say to yourself, "What just happened?" I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute, where every Friday we catch up on the news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel and I live in Arlington. So lately I've been really into this podcast called The Axis of Ego. It's kind of about everything. Um, And that's why I like it so much, because the topics vary so drastically from baseball to online dating. Not that long ago, I, like many people, considered using dating websites to be the equivalent of wearing a big flashing sign that says, I can't function in normal society. Today, however, I realize that the fact that I can't function in normal society is merely a coincidence. 
The reality is that the easiest and simplest way to meet people is through these devices to which we're tethered 24 hours a day. Uh, but they're all really relatable and light and just easy to listen to. And also the host, Tom, has really great stories and funny outlooks and just interesting facts. So yeah, give it a listen. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you're like our friend Rachel from one of the many Arlingtons of America, who knows which one, and you too love a quirky little indie podcast, give us a scoop. Call the pod line and leave a message. The number is 202-885-POD1. Cool. If you've watched TV or movies in the past decade, chances are you've seen Dennis O'Hare in action. The Tony Award-winning actor has been in everything from Milk and Dallas Buyers Club to This Is Us and American Horror Story, where he played a transgender bartender named Liz Taylor. No pity party in my bar, especially when the guest of honor can't see that he's the luckiest man who ever checked into the Hotel Cortez. But recently, O'Hare turned his focus to audio. He's one of the stars of the campy murder mystery podcast, Deadly Manners. The show's ensemble cast includes LeVar Burton, Anna Klumsky, and RuPaul, to name a few. O'Hare plays Bill Billings, husband of Blue Blood hostess Veronica Billings, who is played by Kristen Bell. Veronica rejoined her husband, who sat at their grand piano playing a jaunty tune. Keeping the spirits up too, I see. I may not love these parties of yours, but I do love you. And it pains me to see you so upset. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Dennis O'Hare, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Give us a synopsis of Deadly Manners, this, this murder mystery podcast you're starring in. Well, and I don't want to give away too much. So I have to be careful. No, what I, I know say. major spoiler um, alerts that you'd you'd have to yes, you have to dance to around that. it. But it basically is a um, a festive party being given by a very wealthy couple who are politically connected, and uh, it's of course a strained marriage. And I play the husband who's a little bit in the background. He's mm-hmm. a little bit of a milk toast, and my very powerful, glamorous, charismatic wife is very much in the foreground, and all of her kooky guests are in the foreground. And you know, as we go along, people start dying. Attention. Attention, everyone. As you may have noticed, there is a bit of a storm raging around us. Rest assured, should roads become undrivable, you are all welcome to stay here until it lets up. I can't afford to have anything happen to any of you. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Perhaps I should go grab some candles, just in case. Veronica left, and the guests chattered on. Forks feeding into hungry mouths, plates being scraped, glasses clinking together. The sound of a soft piano. It was a lavish affair, and everyone seemed to be enjoying themselves. Until the power went out completely. Where's the light? This isn't good. Turn the power back on. And then... (laughs) What was that sound? When the lights came on, a shriek was heard from a nearby room. In the billiards room, everyone found an astonished Veronica standing over the dead, bleeding body of the formerly fabulous Enrique Ensemble. A bullet hole through his head, a silver pistol on the ground beside him. 
it's a, it's a locked room mystery. And so we run around and try to figure out who. We try to eliminate people you know, as suspects. And then, of course, your suspect dies. And you're like, oops, he didn't do it, unless right. he's really clever. Right. And, um, and, you know, at the end, there's a shocker. There's a twist. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just going to say that. There's a twist. <laughs> so Deadly Manners is, it takes place around this dinner party. Um, and it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very upscale dinner party. It's very fancy. I'm sure people were wearing gowns and tuxes. Um, Amazing, but, elegant, yes. Right, right. People were sort of smoking cigarettes out of a holder or something like that. People, but with, I, people with colorful socks, yeah. I think. <laughs> I definitely exactly. had good socks on. Exactly, they were not drinking beer at this party. No, uh, no. it was sort of they were they were drinking claret or something. Um, I'm wondering, have you ever been to just a horrendous dinner party? Obviously, not one that ends the way this dinner party in, ends in murder. In murder. Um, but have you I, had some I, trashy I, ones? I have. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been to. I'm I'm in the. Uh, sort of fundraising nightmare world where, as an actor, oftentimes benefits, awards ceremonies, fundraisers, things like that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's always chicken. You never get enough food. And at the same time, you overeat, which is impossible. Um, You have the bread and the butter, and you go, I never eat bread and butter, but now I'm going to eat it because I'm, I'm desperate to do something. And then you're always next to somebody who doesn't know how to have a conversation. Ugh. And so, you know, you're pulling teeth for an hour and a half, and yeah. it's just... My favorite one ever was, I was doing one uh, for Roundabout. Roundabout Theater. Uh, roundabout Theater. And I was doing Assassins, and um, uh, I had a huge red beard, like this crazy <laughs> red beard. And I played Charles Gateau, and it was a real beard. And, you know, there's only nine of us in, in the play. Mm-hmm. And as part of our punishment, you know... We had to go to a fundraiser, and you know, I was next to someone, and she was literally married to an eighty-year-old, and she was thirty, and she was nice, and and she turned to me and she goes, "What do you do?" And I went, "Ah, well, I'm an I'm an actor. Oh, are you in anything now?" I'm like, "Ah, well, funny, uh, you should say that. I'm in Assassins, which is being done right now at Roundabout, which is the theater company that we're here for, and the fundraiser." And she turns to her husband and she goes, um, oh, did we see that one? He went, yeah. And and she goes, oh, yeah, I didn't like that one. No. And then she, oh. she goes, which one were you? And I said, I'm the one with the big beard. <laughs> and I turned and I never talked to her again. I was like, nah, I'm not playing. But that's what these things are. You sit at these things. And I yeah. did one for the ballet once where all the, the young ballet dancers, um, New York City Ballet, were coming up to me because they liked American Horror Story. Uh-huh. And I was sitting with the old fogies, and this man next to me, you know, was so rich and so irritated that these kids knew me. Yeah. And finally he turned to me and he said, who are you supposed to be? <laughs> and I said, no one. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm no one. It was so cra- he was so enraged. Right, that right. He didn't know who I was. Right. And other people did. It was hilarious. I But so, I yes, I've been, I've been to many, many, many dinner parties like that where, where I would like to be the murderer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm normally making um, great acquaintances with the bathroom, you know, in those now, why situations. Is that? I, if I had a full glass in my hand, I couldn't say, oh, I have to go refresh no. my drink. But I can always say, excuse me, I just need to head to the restroom for a second you know, and then hang out in there for 20 minutes. Do you have kids? No. See, no, no. Get yourself a kid. I know. I have a six-year-old. 
and it's brilliant. You just kind of go, um, oh my God, I, I need to check in. I need yeah, to check in. I need to check in with my then, I need to check in. Right. But I would have to say, when I was younger, my parents never checked in with the babysitter. Not once. Not ever. They were like, we don't care if you burn the house down. We're you know getting away to, from they you. They went to better parties, obviously. <laughs> they, they wanted to be at those parties. Perhaps. Perhaps. We're at the wrong parties. I know. Well, you're at parties. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm at home watching you on television. So... <laughs> Well, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you um, what you were listening to because you did mention you were a podcast fan. Um, and I feel like it, this is a safe space. You can tell us what you're yes. listening to. Well, I'm a political guy, so I listen to a lot of politics. Um, uh, there's one amazing one called, I think, Stories from Abroad or something mm-hmm. like that. This is Rough Translation. It's the show from NPR bringing you familiar conversations from unfamiliar perspectives. I'm Gregory Warner. One was about two guys in prison who were reading Anna and Karina to each other by doing it by tapping on the wall in Morse code, which I, I absolutely adored. One evening, when the guard is at the other end of the line of cells, just out of earshot, the guy in the cell next to Mohammed whispers. Through the door saying, Len ABC through the wall. Len ABC through the wall. I did not understand. Len ABC through the wall. How can I? <laughs> I look at the wall between us. So, but, then, but then he knocked on the wall. He, he did this. And when Mohammed leaned over to the wall, he could hear this sound. That's sharp and that. A code. You say, yes, I understand now. And he started this A, B, C, D, E, F. First an alphabet, and then words. And what, what, you, what was the first sentence that you heard? So Nabat, which means peace in Somali, and it means how are you also, yeah. Nabat. I could repeat that word all, all that day if I were, without doing anything else. I listened to uh, The Daily. I listened to um, Slate's political gab fest. I listened to Serial, not Serial, but the, um, can I swear on, on radio? I mean, we can bleep it, yeah. Town. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the name <laughs> of it. S-Town, yeah. S-Town, sorry, there you go, S-Town, which was <laughs> unbelievably good. Oh, yeah. that was so good. Selected shorts, I like that. Have you ever read for them? A lot. Yeah. A lot. I, I've probably done, gosh, at least 10 or, 10 or 11 times. Right. I, I love selected shorts. Well, you have a great um, voice and you're a great actor, oh, thank so it you. makes sense. I, it, it, and then there's another one where you, as an actor, it's an opportunity to do things you don't ordinarily get to do. Yeah. My, my my favorite ever was doing a Neil Gaiman story where he curated the evening. Oh. And it was a story he wrote for Ray Bradbury. It was a 90th birthday present for a friend of mine. And it was written as a tribute to him, to all of the things that he'd made, to all the things he'd created. And it was written as a warning to me. And because I started finding myself losing things. And I didn't want to lose him. I'm forgetting things, which scares me. I'm losing words, although I am not losing concepts. I hope that I'm not losing concepts. If I am losing concepts, I am not aware of it. If I am losing concepts, how would I know? Which is funny, because my memory was always so good. Everything was in there. Sometimes my memory was so good that I even thought I could remember things I didn't know yet. (laughs) Remembering forward. 
I don't think there's a word for that. Is there? Remembering things that haven't happened yet? I don't have that feeling I get when I go looking in my head for a word that isn't there as if someone must have come and taken it in the night. I was just geeking out because I love Ray Bradbury and yeah. I love Neil Gaiman. Yeah. It was so much fun. It sounds but, like um, it. That's what I did. That's yeah. my, those are my podcasts, almost all the political ones. Yeah. I really enjoy those. And um, I listened to one for a while about great books and they were talking about Beowulf. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I, I found it oddly boring. And I'm surprised because <laughs> I'm, I'm a geek. And I was like, oh, my God. You're like, me. I don't know how Beowulf was boring. You know, I loved Beowulf's it in high school. fantastic. <laughs> how could it not? <laughs> and there's, hey, there's a po- my next podcast. Yeah. Beowulf. <laughs> Dennis O'Hare, one of the stars of the murder mystery podcast, Deadly Manners. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dennis O'Hare is one of the stars of Deadly Manners from the Paragon Collective. To find out more about his work or any of the shows he mentioned, check out biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. What? Get out of here. No, it's true. But before we let you go, it's time for C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, well, congrats to you. You'll never want for anything anymore. Okay, so this week's 289 is called The Vanished. Okay, it's about, can you guess? Can you guess? Any guesses what it's about? It's about missing people. It is a podcast hosted by a woman who does not give her last name. Uh, I think her name's Marissa. Rissa? Marissa? I don't know. You can see this for yourself if you look it up. She's literally just looking back at old case files of people who are missing. This is someone's life, and it's important. So I listened to an episode about a, a young woman named Morgan who up and left to go to Atlanta to seek fame and fortune. You know, doing what 19-year-olds do. And the gist of it was basically that she probably was being trafficked in some way. And she ended up in Gainesville, Florida, and she ended up sort of bopping around the South, and then she goes missing. We're not exactly sure what happened. So there are all these clues that the police are looking at. Cell phone pings. And there's been no activity on her phone since that time. Handwriting and fake social media accounts. Morgan frequently posted on Facebook. And social media accounts that get shut down and then get Back, open back up. Her last Facebook posts were on February 25th. The person that they interview on The Vanished is the missing woman's mother. You know, because I was worried. Talking about her missing daughter and how no one can find her and they don't know where she is. And I just could not imagine, not being a parent, what it would be like to have your child up and go missing. I knew she shouldn't go. And you have no idea where they are and no one is helping you. The police were called while we were there and they just they just never came. So maybe you're a super sleuth and you want to help solve all of these missing persons files, then um, yeah, The Vanished, get to it. Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will slide into your feed every week automatically. Also, when you're subscribing, leave us a little review and thanks. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. We are almost as hilarious as that photo of the president trying to do that weird handshake in Asia. Should you want to send us a love note or three, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. 
The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponzi Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was avoiding math at all costs. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from our pal Alice Wong, founder of the Disability Visibility Project. Through a partnership with StoryCorps, Wong is working to lift up the voices of the disability community. And she's trying to counter the lack of coverage of disability issues. It's absolutely true that anybody can become a member of the disability community at any time. All it takes is a, a chronic illness, a car accident, you're a part of our community. People want to separate and kind of distance themselves from people with disabilities is part of the reason why there's such kind of little coverage. With the StoryCorps Collaborative and her podcast, Wong is bridging that distance between those who are disabled and those who are not. In a way, her work is like a love letter to her community. I can't tell you how, how much I love my community how much I want to share to this beautiful community. There are a lot of folks who just don't have an interest or whatever, but they are losing out on an amazing, vibrant, really beautiful and dynamic population that's really changing the world. And Wong is a big part of that. Thanks for hanging out, friends. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.